Hi, I am Dr. Teresa Chappell. I am a perinatal um, and pediatric epidemiologist. My focus has been on COVID and how COVID impacts uh, pregnant women, infants, and children. Um, for the last year, I've been dedicating most of my time to doing that work. I noticed that, of course, you were very active online and social media with regards to COVID and how it's impacting, um, as you mentioned, pregnant women and uh, children. And how did you come to be this kind of public voice about that issue? Is that something you've always done or is it something you started during COVID? Um, I have been on Twitter since 2014. I haven't used Twitter um, before March of 2020, uh, more than once a year. <laughs> so <laughs> COVID was the thing that really brought me to Twitter. And um, I just, I started out just giving educational pieces about what I was seeing, what I was hearing. Um, March of 2020, I started out on Twitter teaching people how to wash their hands and giving them an idea of what 20 seconds is and um, ideas of clips of songs that you can use to sing in your head while you're washing your hands. Um, and then from then on, it was really about how can I help interpret all the science that people are hearing for people who have no scientific background and are just really scared and afraid of what's happening right now. And um, then it became really clear that there were things that we were missing from the science. We were missing an understanding of what COVID does to pregnant women. We were missing an understanding of what um, should happen with pregnant moms who have COVID and their newborns. Should they be separated from each other for the first two weeks? And what could that um, really do to that mother-newborn bond that needs to happen? Um, so along the way, it was really having these in-depth conversations, but in a way that people can understand and really walk away with some of the information that they need. I really pride myself in being a plain speaker. I don't try and use, you know, all the big scientific words to make myself feel smart. I try my best to speak plainly so that anybody listening, anybody could pick it up and understand what's being said. And that's the, the fun that I found of Twitter, that I can be myself, use plain speech, and get people to understand complicated concepts. So, so how have you used data as a focus in how you communicate? As an epidemiologist, it's always about the data. What does the data say? What does the data point to? What doesn't the data say that people have taken <laughs> and made liberties with? Um, and so it's really been kind of at that intersection of explaining the science, explaining the methods, explaining why we have to do something this way, why we have to function this way, and then what the numbers tell us as a result of that. So um, for me, it's, it's been on, in, on that lens. And then on the other side, it's been um, helping localities collect data to know what type of data is necessary for them to make decisions and then teaching them how to make decisions from the data that they collected. So I've been helping school districts 
come up with their contact tracing forms and taking what the local health department's giving them and adapt it to their real life and their functioning as a school. I have helped them then realize that you need to store this data somewhere. <laughs> so where can we put it that's easily able where you can run some quick tables or, and look at how many people have been out over the course of your school year as a result of this? How many days have you know teachers missed and how many times did you need substitutes in? And all that kind of just nitty gritty data stuff that is helpful for planning purposes is what I've been able to help school districts with. And that has been um, a source of pride for me because without that, a lot of schools would have struggled um, around how to collect their COVID data and what their COVID data means. And so you work a lot with schools. What has been your experience with the various types of schools that you've worked with? Because, you know, obviously there are huge high schools and there's tiny elementary schools. How do you communicate things as complex as the pediatric risk of COVID-19, which is changing um, to all of those different groups? Yeah. Um, so I've, I've worked a lot with districts and then some with specific schools. Um, Florida was the worst. Working with districts in Florida was so challenging. <laughs> <laughs> But outside of that, um, it's really taught me a lot of cool things. One, it's taught me that no districts are the same. I've worked with 27 uh, school districts, and there is not one slide deck that I can use that will help me with the next <laughs> presentation I'm going to give. <laughs> Everything is so local with this. And it's a really interesting fact that I think is missed on people who say stuff like the federal government hasn't done enough, um, is that the virus is so localized and the approaches are so localized that um, while there was probably more that needed to be done at the federal government level, if the local communities um, had the resources they needed, we could have handled this at a local level. Um, so yeah, everything has been so different that's what I spend maybe the first two weeks when I interact with the school doing is understanding what their laws say that they can possibly do in school. So in Florida, uh, the idea of opening up windows to the outside to get fresh air is not a possibility because of the laws that happened as a result of uh, the school shooting there. Um, and so then, you know, you have to change. Well, how can we then get reasonable mitigation and I mean, reasonable ventilation in the schools if we can't do something as simple as open windows and doors. Um, so it's really just looking at the laws, looking at the risk of disease in the community, teaching them how to look at the rates of disease because that is something that's changing every day and how to make recommendations as a result. One of my really big things has been helping school districts think about what I call like the ripcord approach. When are you going to pull the record and say, okay, yes, we opened, but it's not working and we ha have to shut down and helping them know that they need to use their data, looking at it every day, look at rolling seven day averages and teaching them, you know, all these epi terms and things that they need to be looking out for so that they can have um, decided when they're going to close a priori 
and make decisions based off that. And what are you seeing in schools that you work with in the 27 districts as far as cases and risk goes? I'm sure it's a broad range and it's more nuanced, but do you feel like school districts have the tools that they need to minimize exposure and um, transmission within the schools? And are you seeing what a lot of us expected to see, which is cases across um, students and staff? What I'm seeing is that all the school districts, all the school boards, all the principals that I've spoken to really want what's absolutely best for their students, teachers, and staff. They are constrained by laws or maybe constrained by politics, but they all want what's absolutely best for their community. And I think that there's not enough spoken about the precarious situation that school boards are in and that school districts are in. And and really there's not enough pushback on why they're in that position. I was just looking at um, Guilford County, North Carolina, and they have a position that they're hiring for, for a public health director for their school district. That to me is um, really sad that school districts feel like they have to do their own public health mitigation. They have to find these experts all on their own um, when this is really something that should be provided as a part of what the government does to protect their uh, the health of their, the people and their citizens. Um, so that's one piece. The next piece about am I seeing you know spread? What I'm seeing is that there's not enough testing in children and there's very little motivation for parents to get their children tested, especially if their children um, are asymptomatic or, you know, have extremely mild symptoms. There's no motivation to do that, especially if you're in an area that has reopened. Why would you get the child who has the sniffles tested and then you can't go back to work for 14 days and neither can your child go to school for 14 days and on and on. Like, it's just, there's very little motivation to do this. So where I'm seeing very few cases does not give me, where I'm seeing very few cases in schools, it doesn't give me reassurance that things are going well in schools. It gives me reassurance that we need testing. <laughs> Yeah, and Georgia is one of the states that's been most difficult to keep up with in terms of cases in its schools because they did not report statewide case numbers the way that Mississippi and New York and other states have done. They basically left it up to the districts to decide to self-report. And because I run the COVID monitor, the national tracking um, program for cases in schools, that meant a lot of very intensive work to go district by district in the entire state to try to mm -hmm. figure out what's going on, um, which makes it very difficult to get data and to understand it. And I think at the last update, there were something like 23,000 cases in Georgia schools, something like that, but it's been not updated in a long time just because of how intensive it is. And that's unfortunate. What are you most proud of with your work during the pandemic? 
I'm most proud of my science communication stuff. Being able to explain complex studies to people and tell them what they need to know and take away from this has been what really excites me. And I, I do that on Twitter, but I also do it in town hall meetings. I also do it um, through zooming into church services and things like that. It really makes me feel good when people say, thank you for helping me understand this, or what you just told me will help me be better at decision-making. And what, um, what also kind of tantalizes my brain is when people say, no, you're wrong. And this is what the data says instead. Um, and this is just regular people from off the streets who's read an article by, you know, some well-known economist or something who has uh, misconstrued all the data on and on, but now they have a uh, following that really supports um, interpreting the data the way they do. And so having those opportunities to kind of have mental sparring <laughs> matches has been really fun for me. Um, and what I hope comes out of that are that people are learning how to be more critical in their analysis and their interpretation of science. Um, no one has to ever walk away agree with, agreeing with me out of those conversations, but they do have to learn, or hopefully they will learn how to read the whole study, how not to skip over the discussion se section, how important it is to weigh each of the limitations of the studies to see what this really means for interpretation and for implementing recommendations. Uh, what do you see your role as in this pandemic in kind of the larger history of what's happened? Um, hopefully at the end of this, school districts will be able to say that they were able to help keep their communities safe by either keeping schools closed until the rates of the virus decreased, or they'll be able to say that, you know, we had to open because that was what our charge was. And we were able to do the best we can with mitigation and understanding data and contact tracing and uh, recommending testing uh, as a result of their time spent working with me. So I know it's hard to pick just one piece of critical information that above all else is important for the public to know. So of course, I'm going to ask you to pick just one piece of information that's critical <laughs> for the public to know above all else if you had to. Um, I think there has been a lot of discussion about vaccination lately, and it's taken the um, foot off the pedal of testing. So we need to continue to test. You need to test if you have symptoms. You need to test if you were exposed. We need continuous rates of testing until we have a population and community that is that has high rates of vaccination. Um, so test, 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 and vaccinate when it's your turn. So how exhausted are you right now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I can say that on average, I go to sleep at two and I'm up by six. So 
I would be so happy when this pandemic is over, when I can actually take a vacation, <laughs> and when I can get some normal sleep. That'd be great. <laughs> so speaking of finally getting sleep, what are your plans for, end quote, after COVID? And I say, end quote, because there's really not a way back to normal. And I wish people would understand that. We will never return to, you know, November 1st, 2019. Yeah. After. And so what are your plans? I tell people that and kind of put it, the framing of HIV and AIDS, where before, you know, the 80s, having sex with a condom was not really a thing. People had unprotected sex all the time and your biggest concerns were, you know, pregnancy or having to take medication for two weeks to get over your STD. Um, But now the world has changed and having, you know, casual sex without a condom is not something that people do (laughs) or, um, or, or think to do on a regular basis. And so that's how I see life post covid I see that COVID will have changed norms and will have impacted long-term how we do things. What I'm hoping is that no one ever blows out the candles on a birthday cake again. Like, can we just never do that? Um, What I'm hoping is that people continue to um, talk to people from a distance. Strangers, stay socially distanced. Like some of the really great things that have come out of COVID is that our rates of flu are pretty much non-existent because we have taken to um, hygiene and and employing hygienic approaches everywhere. Uh, it really makes no sense that schools weren't wiping down the students' desk every day and all of that great stuff to help keep their teachers healthy just throughout the year. Uh, ventilation in schools to help deal with asthma. Like these are things that should have just been done. It shouldn't have to take a huge pandemic to make us want to be healthy. So post pandemic, I'm hoping to live in a world where people don't touch random babies and people stay stay distance from each other to keep us all um, healthy from the random viruses that will continue to pop up. Yeah. It's after is, um, it almost seems like a, a dream for after. And <laughs> if there's anything, I, I get asked a lot, like what my actual expertise is, <laughs> because I'm, you know, I guess I've been a practicing epidemiologist for a year. I feel like I could have gotten a master's degree in it as seeped <laughs> as I've been in the data. But my academic background um, is really about disasters. I put a focus and emphasis on climate and hurricanes and, you know, natural disasters, but really about all types of disasters. And one of the most fundamental principles of disaster and quote recovery is that there is always this illusion that things will go back to the way that they are or were before disaster. And that's not true. And, you know, I really try to emphasize that the world will have to change after this even if it's in subtle ways that we've been conditioned over this last year to not even notice, like staying further away from people at the grocery store. Um, We've been practicing it so much that it may just become something we do. Mm -hmm. Or like you mentioned, being 
much more judicious in cleaning schools, especially with flu, which is, despite what other people say, a very serious virus every year and can kill tens of thousands of people in the United States. Um, I love so when I, people say stuff like, we never close schools for the flu. And then I send them articles about all the times we close schools for the flu. <laughs> and even if, you know, we had not, that doesn't mean that we maybe shouldn't, you know, have reconsidered closing them because mm-hmm. one of the, you know, viruses that makes its rounds every year is a descendant of, you know, the H1N1 virus from 1918. Mm-hmm. And we have become, especially my generation and the generation um, that's slightly older than me, especially Gen X, that's who I'm referring to. I'm going to trash on Gen X uh, for a second. (laughs) Uh, Vaccine adverse. And that's so, I think, heartbreaking to all of the effort that was put into finding a vaccine for the influenza that, you know, wiped out all those people in 1919. And we forget that the vaccines stop those things. It's kind of like let's say you were um, taking cancer medication. This is totally inappropriate because I don't know how it works, but let's just say you were. You're like, oh my God, I feel so much better. I don't think I need my medication. The reason that you feel better is because you were taking the medication. And so if you stop taking it, then you're not going to feel better again. And it's really that kind of, what science has brought us to this point where we have vaccines for some of the most um, awful things out there in the world that can make people sick or cripple them or kill them. And um, to have been able to get to this vaccine the way that we have COVID and see the hesitancy in it um, is really, I think, birthed from the more modern vaccine hesitancy of Gen X and to a lesser extent points. And it's just, it's so frustrating. And I went on a ramble there and I don't know what I was starting with. So, um, <laughs> So I guess my, my last thing is, is there anything else that you want to say or you want people to know about you or your work or anything at all? Um, I want people to also think about equity when they're looking at their data. So one of the things that I teach schools and school districts about as they're looking at their data and COVID positive rates and um, for, their, for their community is to not just look at the number, but also decolonize their data. Um, Does this represent that more minorities are testing positive than those in uh, the majority population? Or what does this mean um, for the burden of disease in certain communities? And so I try and make sure that I'm having those conversations all the time, because it could be that your community positivity rates are low because you have a lot of white people in your community but when you look and see the blacks and hispanics have extremely high rates and then if you are opening anything you're going to be putting more um burden on those communities that are already burdened so i try and make sure i have those conversations all the time and then the next part is that i try and make sure that people know that their local health department is and should be their resource for data and that they should be working closely with their local health department and really try to bring back to the forefront the importance of these city and county health departments um, to public health. Because from all of my time working in uh, state and local governmental public health, every year we received cuts in our funding. 
And I think that now is the prime opportunity to show the importance of governmental public health and funding us um, so that if anything else were to come up, we would be prepared to handle it in a way that we weren't this time around.